Welcome to the Mind Care Podcast, where the mind, brain, and body meet. Here's your host, Glennis Bretherton. Maylene Coleman is the president of the Australian Hypnotherapist Association, also known as the AHA. She has worked in a very busy clinic of which she was the owner and operator. Today, she has an interesting private practice in Ellis Springs in the Northern Territory of Australia. If you're not Australian, then let me tell you about the area. The area is known to be the red centre of Australia. It's hot, it's humid, with an average temperature of 36 degrees Celsius. Alice Spring is surrounded by several different deserts, and the town has a high population of Indigenous people. This area of Australia is rich in colour, with blue skies and a very red, rich earth. We had a few difficulties with the internet when I was having a chat with Mei Lin. Being in the Northern Territory, sometimes there can be internet difficulties and they certainly raised their head while we were doing this interview. So I just ask you to be patient, but really listen to the information that Mei Lin discusses in the interview. Some of the information is based on her own opinion and not of the Australian Hypnotherapist Associations. I will endeavour to contact the presidents of the Australian Society of Clinical Hypnotherapists and the Hypnotherapy Council of Australia to interview them. Hi, Maylene Coleman. Welcome to Mind Care Podcast. When did you first become interested in hypnotherapy? I was always interested in it as a, a form of entertainment. And Sparno, who was really well known in WA, used to come. We had very little entertainment when I was growing up in Darwin. But Sparno used to come at least two or three times a year. And we all found the shows hilarious, especially his our arranged ones. So I was fascinated by it. And we used to go to all of his shows. You know, if he was there for a week, we would be at all of them. Uh, and then as the years went by, I kind of didn't think too much about it. You know, as I then I moved to Europe, I moved all over the place. And how I came to be a practitioner was actually completely by accident. A friend of mine in Perth said, we have a speaker tonight and you have to come. She was quite psychic, quite sensitive. And it was a hideous night in Perth. It was hailing and raining and windy and I had to drive 45 minutes. And I was really cross with her, but I trusted her judgment. So in the car and off I went. I was thinking, why? It was a guy speaking about hypnosis and, and uh, I thought, I'm not in, remotely interested. Why did she make me come to this? And then he was doing a demonstration and I found myself leaning forward, leaning forward and Something in my mind said, if you can tell when that person goes under, and I don't know what the rest of that thought was. I just remember leaning forward and going, there, there it is, right there, right there, and signed up for a course that night at 11 o'clock. Wow, wow. I had a counsellor and I had no intentions of ever being in a therapist, none, none whatsoever. So, yeah, that's how I came to it. Yeah. So what intrigued you? I think that... The fact that I could identify with that demonstration and see the moment he went under, identified an affinity in me with it. But also I had been a counsellor for a number of years and I just saw a faster way. Because not everybody that goes to a counsellor wants to talk. 
So, you know, then I started thinking about possibilities and going for those people that can't really just work for. What could we do? We could do anything. We could do amazing things. And that's what kept me down the path. Yes. So, so moving from a counsellor, did you um, market yourself as a clinical hypnotherapist? I always kept the counselling. So I, I basically call myself a counsellor and a clinical hypnotherapist. And sometimes, depending on the situation, that's reversed, clinical hypnotherapist and counsellor. Um, but, yes, I, I guess like like all of us, goodness, all of us in, in, in the field, you develop your own unique style and your own unique way of doing uh, doing what you do. So, you know, over the years, it's a, like everybody else, it evolves, it, you know, it, it comes along and, and then you've got your own unique method. Yeah. So tell us more about your own unique method. <laughs> well, that's hard to pinpoint because I am very, very, I'm a big fan of Carl Rogers and so I'm very, I'm extremely person-centred. You know, so and I'm very, very intuitive as well. So I kind of go with the gut, go with the gut. You know, the intellect drives things, but the gut, the gut moves things. I guess. Mm. Big fan of the clearing, the generic clearing. You know, I think if anybody in hypnosis is not doing generic clearing, or be more specific if it's possible, but I think you know my my uh, metaphor for for. The hypnosis is always, imagine your mind is a huge warehouse right back to the beginning of your time, whatever the exception is of that. And imagine how much rubbish you can get there. <laughs> <laughs> and I always use my own linen cupboard as, a, as an analogy for that because my own linen cupboard is tried as hard as I might. Always, always looks a bloody mess. So... Um, you know, it's like cleaning the linen cupboard out. Clean it out. All the stuff, the things that served you at two are not serving you now. So let's just go and have a clear out. Mm. So that's my first and foremost fallback. Everybody gets a clear out and then we go with the gut. So you, you sort of spoke about Rogerian type of style. So that's very much um, about being with the client, you know, being authentic with you. Uh, yes. as well while you're, you're with the client you know sometimes a client will come along and you just go you know what this is going to work beautifully for you because um you know hypnotherapy works really well with this issue um i definitely do i have a passion now before i say that before i say what it is i will say i moved to alice Springs over three years ago from perth now i had a thriving um practice in a multi-modality clinic in the perth in the hills of perth and really, really busy, absolutely phenomenally busy. So I could be a little bit more specific in my work, you know. So all of the smokers, for example, were third on. Absolutely, you know. Um, that's not my passion. But having moved to Alice Springs where there's an abundance of mental health psychologists and lots of them are subsidised, mm. it's not free. Mm. So then you have a private practitioner like myself who charges Business took a whole different look. It really did. So when I say, yes, in Perth, where I had the luxury of being a specialist, my absolute passion is emotional blockages. Okay. You know, clearing, um, there's an expression that a beautiful person said to me many, many years ago, maybe 20 years ago, you know, finding your own magnificence. Okay. 
That is my passion. That is my passion. Clearing the rubbish out of the way that holds us back and stops us from blossoming, blooming, you know, whatever word you like to choose. That, that is my passion. So whether that is, I, I used to work with a lot of African people who were children during wartime in, in the African countries, which was, you know, particularly terrifying. Uh, children who lost their parents being murdered, you know, in, in war environments and whatnot. And those kinds of, that kind of work, clearing the trauma, clearing the blockages, clearing the crap that was in the way, the terror, the fear, the trauma, Absolutely. And to the point where people are just a bit scared to take that leap, you know, into into what you say what to do. So those are my passions. Anything that frees us up, I'm passionate about that. But of course, Alice Springs, I'm more of a general practitioner again now because, you know, I'm the only one here. (laughs) Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a master of all concerns. Definitely, most definitely, yes. yes. So, so being in Alice Springs, do you get Indigenous people visiting you? I do, I do. Most of them, though, are, you know, self-responsible, working, independent, Aboriginal people. There's a huge culture in the centre of Australia where it's very dependent because the majority, like, the majority of Indigenous people live in the Northern Territory. Uh, I mean, the, the, I'm sorry, no, 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 scrap that. The majority of the population, you know, compared to the rest of Australia, and they're living in very, very remote places, very remote places. There's no work, there's no industry, there's no anything, basically. Um, you know, you, you, you're travelling two, three, four hundred kilometres to get into town. So it's a very welfare-dependent um, situation here. So it's not, it's not something that the, 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 the ordinary Indigenous person living on country is ever going to afford or even think of. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Sadly. Sadly, yeah. because I'd love to get out. And I would love the health, um, you know, the health systems, the health, thing, the health you know, organisations in place. I would love to see them do something, mm. um, you know, with the drug and alcohol issues in particular. It would be great to get out into the community and offer hypnotherapy as a service. But, of course, most mainstream departments are very risk-averse. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you an experience I had in WA. We, I, I was up uh, in Broome with a friend of mine. Um, we got into an old truck with an elder and we wound up in the middle of the bush. We sat there with this elder. He was a really old guy. And, um, and he started to tell us about the stars and what the stars meant and, and how the rocks were placed on the earth and this beautiful sort of dream time story. And that actually influenced me with hypnotherapy because I, I remember that, that experience yeah. of that and, and how the energy, um, you know, the, both of us were surrounded by this beautiful energy because this guy created this story which had a lot of meaning to him. So hypnotherapy um, or hypnosis and dream time, I, I always kind of thought those stories, there, there was sort of an, an angle that you would be able to help Indigenous people by using what they, they work with every day and that's that dream time stories and, you know, it's passed down from generation to generation. Yeah. In theory, you're absolutely right. The community are very unique. 
But I would love to be more involved back at this because I grew up in these parts. You know, I spent quite a lot of my childhood in the centre and in being very remote areas in Australia. So one of my things on my bucket list was to go and work out at a community in whatever capacity that came along. So within three months in 2015, within three months of arriving, um, you know, someone I know who knew someone who knew someone else who knew someone else sent me an email and said, there's a training opportunity out at a, at a community called Tichikara. And as it turned out, you know, I've got a long history in training and, you know, and I'm qualified and I worked in a women's prison for many, many years as a trainer. So I said, right, that's mine. And so I rang up, you know, the Darwin office of Bachelor and said, yeah, I think you need me, you know, and yes, they do. So I spent two days a week travelling down to Tikala, which is, um, it's only about an hour and a half. Uh, but like everything in this part of the world, dirty, dusty, bumpy road, you know, was always an experience. Changing tyres became second nature. Stopping for camels and donkeys became second nature. But, look, I just loved that. Loved, loved, loved it. And, look, if I could find a way that would be acceptable and, and, and actually, you know, work to get out to the community with hypnotherapy, I jump in there, no, no doubts about it. Mm. Oh, you certainly sound passionate. That's really cool, and that's that's um, that journey has kind of brought that's you to fun. here and now, where you're the president of the Australian Hypnotherapists Association. So, how's that? <laughs> <laughs> that depends on the day you ask. Maybe. Yes, I'm sure I am. <laughs> most definitely. No, look, for the most part, it's really good. Um, I did end up here by accident. I remember Mayor Luck rang me years and years and years ago and said, um, you need to be the national secretary. And I'm like, well, I'm sure I don't. But then, <laughs> but then you know, Antoine, because the thing is with anybody in any of these positions is a succession plan. So Antoine Mastrasso quickly decided that I would be his succession plan and set about that for a couple of years. And, and when he stood down, of course, then either I was already acting president when he did step down. Um, so I'm now organising my own succession plan because I think, you know, the future of associations is very different from the past. Yes. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a lot of documented studies now that show that the majority of people putting their hands up for associations are 45 or 50 plus, plus, plus. Very, you know, the, the, the generations coming before us, yes, I'll put myself in there, um, are not as inclined to do these sorts of things as we are now. There's lots and lots of reasons which I won't, you know, insult anybody by going into right now. There's good reasons, there's bad reasons, and there's horrible reasons. But the fact remains that it is not the volunteer society across the board, you know. I was a volunteer fire and rescue fighter as well for many years and um, I started in WA and I came over here. And there's nothing funnier than to see all of your volleys turning out to a fire or, you know, some emergency situation. And all of us have got one foot in the bloody grave. I mean, honestly, no, 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 I don't know, I don't mean that. But we're all mature people. And it's a very, there's very few young ones. So sad but true. So I don't know what the future of associations might be. A lot of it is pointing towards robotic 
situation, you know, where everything's electronic and there are no people yeah. in the background. One of the big things while I've been sending out emails about, you know, gee, would you like to be a volunteer? That would be great, blah, 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 blah. We'll help you, we'll support you. The most asked question coming back from those emails I send out as president of the AHA is, is that position paid? Mm. So it's an interesting future ahead for any, not just the AHA but any association. I really, yeah, I really don't know where we're, we're going to end up. Mm. Mm. I I uh, watched a TED talk and look, I I don't know who it was, um, and this fellow was talking about uh, charity and organisations, and he had a huge organisation, huge. Um, charity organisation, it was global and, and did a lot of work, and I, I just can't remember his name, he ran it like a business. So he had profit and loss, you know, he had the balance sheet, he had the works, this guy, and his charity was very successful. He had to do some really good work with people. So maybe that's a thing, uh, something of the future with associations, that it becomes a business. It's like one of the things that we're doing at the moment is, is doing some research to, into media marketing, you know, because one of the big things that we need to do with hypnotherapy is get it out there in a much stronger way than yeah. it currently is. So not just, you know, getting into the medical mainstream, but also public education, you know, with the longer we go on with hypnotherapy being deregulated, the worst things are going to get. Now, you know, I mean, that's where the associations do step in because we do self-regulate. But at the moment, it is perfect. As you've been well aware, Glenis, you know, it is perfectly legal to read, read a book, do an hour's training, and set up your business as a hypnotherapist. And the healthcare complaints in each state are getting vastly increasing complaints about hypnotherapists. Thankfully, very few, I think, or in fact, I think it's none. Uh, AHA members have been involved in that, made that continue. But um, yes, because of these people who read a book, and then we you know you don't need to let your imagination run right very long to imagine what those possibilities are. But uh, it's it's coming into the into the into the the minds of the general public. Yeah. So one of the recent things with the national committee is let's spend some of that money. You know, that because we're a not-for-profit at the moment, of course, and, um, you know, you, you can't have that much money sitting in a bank, so you have to be careful of that, so you organise conferences or, or something like where we're trying to organise right now, in that, uh, yes, let's get a good media person getting out there, getting them out there, getting out to the doctors, getting out to the general public. Educate, educate, educate. Hey, guys, just a quick message. If you like what you hear on Mind Care Podcast, would you give us a rating and also offer a review? You could send us a message by going to our website. Over the past, uh, look, I'd say probably the five years, maybe a bit longer. Um, as you know, I, I do a bit of education and I've noticed a with the type of people who are interested in hypnotherapy and also a change in the industry as such is that more people are becoming more um, business-focused and more interested in uh, knowing more about hypnotherapy. I guess I have sort of a different approach to the guys. I mean, a lot different to the guys that just read a book and, and get out there. But there's been this swing 
And also a swing in the research. You know, the, uh, a lot of researchers are turning or paying attention to hypnotherapy overseas. Yeah. We're always a bit behind the eight ball over here, aren't we? You know, yes. things like IBS, pain management, we look at stress. There's some, some guys that are doing some terrific work out there. And this is really important for the hypnotherapist to know about, you know, to know about research, to know, you know, what, what is ahead of them. If they, if they get educated properly, they join the associations and keep up to date with professional development. So when I sort of say that, what do you think about that? Oh, I'm totally, total agreeance. Total agreeance. I, 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 look, there's so many different facets to this, but it's not funny. Um, look, I set up last year the Facebook, the AHA Facebook, and I do, I have Google alerts out on hypnotherapy all of the time. So any research that's hitting, it goes straight onto Facebook. Now, we've sent emails out, we put that in the journal. I think we're at around 360 likes or followers, you know, on the on the AHA Facebook page. Now, I'm eternally disappointed about that. Um you know, we, we all have the same issue there. People don't read. People don't time for whatever reasons. They don't read. They don't read anything yet. <laughs> so, but I look, I'm huge on that. And I see any, any, any research, even any media articles, bang, they're straight on the Facebook page, bang, bang, bang. I'm a bit of a freak for that. One of the big issues I see for us in Australia is that the majority of our hypnotherapists are not university educated or academically, don't have academic backgrounds. Now, I'm not saying that as a negative, but I am saying that as a basis, in fact, for the very little research that's being done because people don't understand how to do good qualitative research. They just don't have the background. It's not It's not a put down in any way. It is if you've never done it and you don't know how to do a good research model and set it up so that we get the results we're looking for, well, you can't expect someone to do that, you know. Anecdotal research is not cutting it anymore. And we all love anecdotal stories, you know. Hypnotherapy has written on that for, for how many years? Hundreds and hundreds of years. But now we've got to get down to brass tacks. We've got to develop good, solid research models. We've got to get them out. We've got to get multiple people using them. We've got to have the skill. Now, there are a few people who have tried to do the various courses in, in research and, you know, get people a bit enthused and a bit excited about that. hasn't taken off yet, but I am endlessly optimistic and hopeful that this will become part, you know, in the not too distant future. Because I think it's imperative. If we're not, if we're not out there in the research fields, the mainstream are not going. They're going to keep treating us like the poor cousins. Yes. You know, the reality is is that hypnotherapy um, produces results. Yes. But it's a very it's a very difficult to measure the results, which is why the research models have to be very solid and very good. I mean, we're going to have to go back to the basics of, of psychology and psychiatry to measure those. You know, when they first started doing research with psychology, well, it felt like a daunting task. Oh, how on earth are we going to do this? You know, what are our models? What are our measurements? You know, having a having a, a base model petri dish is very different. To, to what we're looking at. And those are the areas where we need people to start stepping up and, and shining and uh, and developing a passion for those things. 
Yes, it's a conversation I have with many people, and, and you know, I, I know a lot of academics, and we're always banging the table over red wine and, and discussing, you know, what it is we need to do. <laughs> but it has to be done. It does yeah. have to be done. More and more, the, the type of students I'm getting are, you know, psychologists, doctors, um, a couple of psychiatrists that have been through. So they're, they're more academically inclined. And, and some of the guys that come in that um, don't necessarily have an academic background are actually going into academia. They're going yes. further into studying psychology because they want to know, you know, the mechanics of a person. So... So, yeah, yes, different change, definitely. So um, where do you see uh, AHA going? What do you see the future of it? Well, apart from the lack of volunteers for the positions, that, that, that clearly has to evolve over time. I'm, not quite, I'm still not quite sure where we'll end up with that. Automated or profit and loss paid positions, I don't see how the AHA could sustain that, quite frankly, mm. uh, not in its current membership level. I don't think that it, uh, that's economically viable. I really don't. Um, so, look, the thing that the National Committee discusses at length and ad infinitum, where are we going and how will we do it while people are not, sorry, that my fingers there, while people are not putting their hands up, you know. Um, so that's the one aspect. It, look, ultimately, ultimately we'll probably be a part of regulation. It has to come. I mean, there are no risks in the wind, as we well know. Yeah. But at some point or another, it's going to come, whether that's in my lifetime or, you know, or five, ten years, fifty years, who knows? There are no there are no little neon lights weeping at us yet. But it will come. It will come, you know. The chiropractors rode the way we are for many, many years and then bang, all of a sudden they were all regulated very quickly. Traditional Chinese medicine as well, now part of Parkra. So it will happen, it's just a matter of when will it happen. And that won't be a bad thing. It will be challenging. It will be challenging for everybody. And people who haven't done what they need to do to prepare for that, uh, you know, it may be a little bit challenging, a little bit more challenging, um, for sure. Who knows? It's, it's a bit of a mystery, though, isn't it? Mm. You know, when, how, where, what will it look like? All we can say for sure is that it will happen. So, look, the AHA will try to be as ready as it possibly can be for that, for the yeah. grandfather clausing, for, for all of those things. We're um, we're about to embark this year finally on rewriting the Constitution, which, you know, the majority of which was written in 1949. <laughs> 1949. Yeah. Yeah, it was founded in 1949. So wow. a lot of those original things, well, it probably was written a few years after that, but regardless of when it was written, it's really old and it really needs a re an overhaul. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we had this massive clear out last year, you know, of all the filing cabinets that Mayor had stored in her house for so many years. And the historical thing we found, if it hadn't been for all of this changing over to the new, you know, customer relationship management system with the, you know, the whole the whole electronica with the AHA, I would have gotten round to it by now, but we have historical documents that are gobsmacking. And at some point, 
quite soon, I hope. These will end up, there'll be a, a, a historical section on the new AHA website. Oh, love, that would be great. Lovely. Yeah. Some of the documents are unbelievable. You know, and the war, the war that the original AHA members had with the psychology boards. Oh, it's phenomenal. Some, some absolute gold. <laughs> So there's the history, Australian history. Yes, yes, yes. And I hope that would put some things into perspective as well. And, you know, I know there's a lot of grumbles out there about what's the AHA doing for me, you know, why be a member, blah, 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 blah. But I think those things will really help to, to show how far we've actually come. Yes, yeah, yeah. From my perspective, if you want my two cents worth, is that I've, yeah. always, <laughs> I've always sort of said to, to the guys that um, – you know, teach, look, I think it's really important to be a member of an association. It supports the industry, sets us up as a professional, um, and also they, they get journals and, and feedback and emails and information from you guys, and it keeps them sort of centred. They can belong somewhere as well. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's important work. Hmm. Look, I value that, but I totally agree. not last year, the year before, with all the AGMs and my speech basically took the same shape in that, you know, why do we have to come to AHA meetings and workshops? Well, in the old days, when I first joined in 2004, it was mandatory to go to 75% of training and, and uh, meetings. Wow. Mandatory. You had to. And then when we reduced it to 50%, everybody was up in arms and we were like, but hang on a minute, we've done a good thing. We've reduced it. But because so Nobody was aware of it. I was like, oh, okay, well, this is interesting. But but my my thing with that was, why why do you have to come to our team meetings? Well, because we really want to foster this team spirit. Mm. If you don't work and you don't join in, how are you going to know what you're a part of? How are you going to, you know, meet those colleagues that become friends that, you know, then grow with yeah. you? Um, how do we grow as an association if nobody's turning up? You know, all of those wonderful volunteers that we have and the workshop coordinators sit there with their heads in their hands going, why? Why do I bother? You know, there's all of this tension and, you know, it's as much of the hypnotherapy industry and looking professional as it is for being together because that's another one of the things I'd really like to see diminish considerably, is the competition that goes on in Australia. The, you know, the, the different associations treating each other like the arch enemy. I don't, I don't understand that, Glennis. I really don't understand that. I think we should be united. I think we should be working together. We all love the profession. Let's, let's go east, for goodness sake. Please. Actually, there was a, a question I was going to literally throw at you in a minute, <laughs> is that why not one association, why not the, the governing bodies joining um, together and creating, you know, all the membership um, uh, from everyone in Australia joining and being under one umbrella? I didn't realise it was competition, you know, in, in amongst the association. So the question is an innocent one. So, so why? Well, possible the different personalities and the histories and none of which is appropriate to go into right now. Oh, sure. A lot of them I don't even know. 
you know, a lot of it is long before my time. But look, we do. We have what's called a peak body, which is the Hypnotherapy Council of Australia. They are still, unfortunately, finding their feet. Uh, you know, so far they have uh, a constitution, they have a uh, ethics, they have minimum standards, which the AHA is very disappointed to know for far below the AHA standards. But that the HCA is made up of all the schools and all of the associations. Well, maybe not all of the associations, but most of them. And so there's one representative from each school or association. Um, and, you know, it's there seem to be some issues with coming to an agreement like minimum standards, you know, if, I, if you know, my own personal view, not the AHAs, but Maylene Coleman's personal view, is that we should keep increasing the educational standards, not letting them end up being static and not lowering them either. So the peak body should not have minimum standards of education that are lower than one of their major associations. It's, it's an issue. It's an issue. However, I'll, I'll just leave that there. There, right there. Um, but, look, the HCA, in my opinion, again, not the HAs, but my opinion, needs to be a lot more cohesive and bring all of the associations together so that we do have one voice, not lone voices in the woods. We're not going to advance the industry by doing that. We have to have a strong and a united voice and I would like to see the HCA working stronger and harder towards that goal. But I agree with you. One association, one strong-voiced association, yeah. perfect. Yeah. It's, it's been too long. You know, there's little state associations in various states around Australia. Then, you know, the two biggest ones are the, um, the, a the ASCH and the AHA. They're the two bigger ones, but there's honestly there's half a dozen or more different hypnotherapy associations in Australia. We, we need to we need to cohese. Yeah. Uh, the Psychological Society is a good example of of um you know one one well uniformity, you know, everybody uh, coming together and being under yeah. an association. You know, whether you agree with the way that that, that association works or not, the the grounding's there, isn't it? It's a it's a model that could be duplicated and it can be improved. Yeah. Absolutely. And imagine how many more resources, like the APC, uh, APS, the Australian Psychological Society, for instance, they fund all of their uh, different branches. So for their get-togethers, which we could look at peer support centre, yeah. their get every month in our Springs, it's the first Tuesday of every month, so there's money provided for food. There's money provided for a speaker. There are so many more resources because they are one united group. So each state and faction or branch, if you like, has a budget. Mm. And this is the same of the chiropractic uh, association as well. One body, you know, it makes yeah. sense. Why yeah. hypnotherapy is still so fractured, I, I wish I wish I had an answer that didn't sound like history repeating itself, you yeah. know. Yeah. I would love, if someone came to, to, to the AHA with a great plan to unify all of us and pull the resources uh, in a way that was fair and equitable and wasn't an ego-driven thing yeah. or power-driven thing, well, we would listen. 
we would definitely listen, you know, because I think until we united, we are all floundering around in the dark. Yeah. The perspective of the AHA, as far as hypnotherapy goes, does those in the AHA see it as being an independent approach or as an adjunct to, say, counselling or psychology approaches? Is there a perspective that you hold? Historically, the AHA was founded to be hypnotherapy, pure, pure, unadulterated hypnotherapy. There are a lot of people in the industry right now who are very scared that it's going to be swallowed up. You know, so back in the day when they had the um, hypnotherapists who were purely hypnotherapists, not psychologists, not counsellors, not anything else, just hypnotherapists, they had to wage this battle with the psychology boards that went for years and years and years and ended up with many of them being charged, you know, um, very interesting times. They won that battle and that's when deregulation began, of course. Now... What we're seeing is a flip around. So quite a few of the educational institutions, the hypnotherapy educational institutions, are now targeting their training at psychologists, social workers, counsellors, you know, more other mental health professionals. So it is a bit of a concern that the pure, pure hypnotherapist may well be a dying breed. As far as the AHA is concerned, we don't discriminate. <laughs> we still are majority to a hypnotherapist. You know, like myself, some of us had counselling before. We've got a whole lot of psychologists who are members. We even have some medical doctors as well these days. Uh, they're coming from all aspects of education and society. So at this point in time, yes, we are still purely a hypnotherapy association. Not but you know, embracing all of the other modalities. That- yeah, was listening to a podcast um, going back. Oh, look, probably a month ago, and uh, this fellow uh, was a researcher of hypnotherapy, and he was saying, um, you know, in Mesmer's time, that the client would relinquish control, give control over to the hypnotist. And if we sort of push ourselves forward to the 21st century, you know, the type of clients that we're getting are more educated. You know, if they want to find out what hypnotherapy is, they go on to, you know, old Google and uh, do a bit of research even before they they go and see a a clinical hypnotherapist. So we've got a different type of client. They're they're not willing, which is good, but they're not um, sort of more leaning towards handing over their therapy to the hypnotherapist. So our style of hypnotherapy has actually changed. It was very traditional and very, very direct. And after Ericsson in particular, that uh, it's more of, you know, being in the moment with the client and responding to the client. But we still, in the industry, we still have a split down the middle. And and correct me because um, if you think I'm wrong here because you're in a different position, you see more people um, who are at the other end, you know, they're qualified and, and they're practising. But I, I find with colleagues that there is this split that it is either traditional and and that works and it's very straightforward direct work or what is this to that? So I've hit you with that one. <laughs> What's your response to that? 
which is a really good question. And the answer, unfortunately, is how long this piece is true. Yeah. Because I've seen, again, like yourself, seen such a shift, you know. I've never been a fan of the authoritarian style of hypnosis. It's not who I am. Um, I found it fascinating and really, really interesting, you know, that whole very bossy, you know, you do as I say and if you're not why you here kind of approach frightens me. <laughs> I don't relate to it uh, personally, but you're absolutely right. There are the diehard Ericksonians and traditionalists, you know, there absolutely are. But there are so many different hybrids. Uh, I mean, now we've got the psychics, we've got uh, more scientific-based you know, you've got your NLPs. What again? How long is a piece of string? There are so many other modalities feeding in to your hypnotherapy training. As and then, let alone once they've graduated, then they're going off and they're finding this, they're finding that, and they're yeah. ending up in all sorts of different directions. I find it fascinating to see that. You know, when we started this chat. That's really what I was aiming at when I said, you know, when you morph and you develop your own unique style of working, uh, that's exactly what I was referring to. There are, look, I spoke to somebody who's a a prospective new member of the AHA this morning who came into hypnotherapy via flower essences. So bark flower, rescue remedy and the like. And that's how he came into hypnotherapy. And I was, wow, isn't that fascinating, you know, because the two, the two are, on the face of it, not really connected, you know. Yeah. Yes, they're both energetic. They both can be quite surreal and ethnic. But, uh, yeah, look, it is, it is this ever-changing and ever-evolving hypnotherapist isn't it it's it's it is there is always one question that I ask (laughs) amongst many others Um, and that is if you were to go back to a time uh, say you're a 16 year old girl and knowing your journey and where you have come as you know today what would a 16 year old girl many many things I'm trying to think the most important Stay fearless, stay fearless, and believe in your truth. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It really has. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I noticed, I'll just have to say this, is that as, you, as you've been talking, um, because you can't see yourself, and, uh, I can, you've had a twinkle in your eye all the way through the conversation. And uh, <laughs> to me, that's passion, and that's really lovely. So thank you very oh. much. Thank you, Glynis. That's beautiful. Thank you. It's been, it's been lovely. I have enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks for that. If you'd like more information, then go to the Mind Care Podcast website. We'll also tell you about our next guest. 